Hi, I'm Tina Desiree Berg, and welcome to the 34th. Chris, let me start by reiterating something you and I have talked about previously, and that's my concern that critical information about the implementation of the Patriot Act has not been made public, information that I believe would have a significant impact on the debate. I urge you to move expeditiously on the request that I and others in this committee have made before the legislative process is over. Now, in Suzanne Spaulding's testimony for the next panel, she argues that additional safeguards are needed in the context of intelligence investigations because of the very broad scope of intelligence investigations, the secrecy with which they must be conducted and the fact that they often do not lead uh, to prosecution. That is, we have to uh, take into account that safeguards inherent to criminal investigations are simply not always present in the context of intelligence investigations. Mr. Christ, do you agree that additional vigilance is needed in the context of intelligence investigations? Yes. And in fact, isn't that what was demonstrated, at least in part, uh, by the IG reports on national security letters? Well, I think the problems that Mr. Fine found are significant. I think they've been remedied. I'm not sure that those are inherent in an intelligence use of NSLs, but, I mean, certainly they are significant and they warrant attention, and I think they've gotten a lot of attention. Mr. Fine, would you agree that the lack of safeguards contributed to the misuse of NSLs? I think to some extent the fact that they were not uh, transparent does uh, produce an environment where there needs to be more significant vigilance. Mr. Chris, as you know, the Patriot Act provided statutory authority for the government to obtain a special sneak-and-peak criminal search warrants uh, that allow agents to break into Americans' homes and conduct secret searches without telling them for weeks, months, or even longer. It is true, isn't it, that these searches can be conducted also in run-of-the-mill criminal cases and do not require any connection to terrorism? Uh, that's true, both before... And in fact, and according to a July 2009 report of the Administrative Office of, uh, of the U.S. Courts, isn't that exactly how this authority has most recently been used? The report shows that in fiscal year 2008, sneak-and-peak search warrants were requested 763 times but only three of those initial requests, just three, were in terrorism cases. The vast majority were for drug cases. Now, is that your understanding of that report, and does it concern you at all? Um, it is my understanding, and I want to say thank you to your staff who um, alerted me and allowed me to uh, read the report in advance of this hearing. It does say here that 65% of the, these are criminal sneak and peek, were in drug cases. Obviously, just to make something clear, which I know you understand, that on the FISA side, the searches that we do pursuant to FISA are not exactly sneak and peek. They're generally covert altogether. So this authority here on the sneak and peek side, on the criminal side, is, is not meant for intelligence. It's for criminal cases. So I, I, well, I guess it's not surprising to me that it applies in, in drug cases. I recall it was uh, in something called the USA Patriot Act, which was passed in a rush after an attack on 9-11 that had to do with terrorism. It didn't have to do with regular run-of-the-mill criminal cases. And let me tell you why I'm concerned about these num numbers. That's not how this was sold to the American people. It was sold, as stated on DOJ's website in 2005, as being necessary, quote, to conduct investigations without tipping off terrorists. I'm going to say it's quite extraordinary to grant government agents the statutory authority to secretly break into Americans' homes in criminal cases. And I think some Americans might be concerned that it's been used hundreds of times in just a single year in non-terrorism cases. And that, 
That's why I'm proposing additional safeguards uh, to make sure that this authority is available where necessary, but not in virtually every criminal case, and also to shorten the time period uh, for notification. Well, I don't mean to quibble with you. I, I do want to just point out one thing, which is I, I, I mean, when, before when I was trying to carve out FISA, just to clarify that FISA is a different authority where it is covert. And also, if, it's, if I'm correct on this, I believe two courts of appeals prior to the Patriot Act had authorized sneak and peek under existing law. This was, yes. I think, meant to be a codification Some of that Some courts doctrine. permitted secret searches in limited circ circumstances before the Patriot Act, as I remember from the debate, but they okay. also recognized the need for prompt notice unless a reason to continue to delay the notice was demonstrated, and they specifically said that notice had to occur within seven days, which is what we fought for at the time of the Patriot Act, which is what our bill proposes. So I think uh, you make a fair point that it was allowed to some extent, but without these protections, this is a dramatic change in our general criminal law that doesn't necessarily relate to terrorism. Thank you, Mr. with Shahid Buttar, who is running against Nancy Pelosi in District 12 in the San Francisco Bay Area. I invited Shahid on the podcast today because I wanted to discuss with him something that's been in the news of late that's not getting a lot of press coverage. Shahid used to be um, with the EFF group where he headed up activism with grassroots and students, and he's also a constitutional lawyer. Welcome, Shahid, because we're going to talk about the reauthorization of the Patriot Act. Thanks so much for having me, Tina. It's great to be with you. Yeah, I can't think of anybody better to discuss this particular topic with. So March 15th marked a, marked a date in which uh, the Patriot was coming up for reauthorization, but the vote didn't happen. So I want to walk a little bit through why that's the case and why it's on the House Democrats that it didn't happen. So we have Rep. Uh, Zoe Lofgren, who is also here in California, who had some amendments that she's been trying to add that would actually add some, some uh, cur curtail some of the surveillance activities of the Patriot Act. So these are things that are against our Fourth Amendment rights. This is the FISA courts. This is the spying that's gone on with uh, phone, uh, et cetera, all these sorts of things. So she wanted to add these amendments, and the House Democrats saw them as a poison pill because they don't want to uh, curtail the surveillance state. So please walk us through the period of time starting in 2019 where we first were looking at the reauthorization happening until the March 15th date and why all of these steps are important. Yeah, if, if, if I can, I'd even take it back further just to set the stage. Okay, please set so, the so stage, we're, yeah. We're talking here about government surveillance powers that have never been debated in public, but have been imposed for now 20 years without ever having been the subject of an open, transparent debate. And they were adopted in the wake of a set of catastrophic terror attacks. They were pulled off the shelf. They had been objects of longstanding aspiration by the right wing. And they were basically weaponized, rammed yeah. through Congress, long before most members of Congress even read the bill. Yeah. And I want to particularly distinguish between voices like former Senator Russ Feingold or Representative Barbara Lee, who did the right thing and stood with the Constitution, even when it was unpopular, instead of going along with this mass hysteria that put in place the legal superstructure for what Edward Snowden revealed in 2013. So what we're basically talking about here is congressional failures to respond to the revelations that alarmed the world uh, now, seven years ago, that we still haven't grappled with. Yeah. The yeah, it's insane. 
Um, so specifically, Zoe Lofgren uh, is, is also somebody that's been working on this. So she thinks that now is the time to actually do something about curtailing those powers because yeah. it is up for reauthorization. And it seems to me that members of both party are, are OK with the way things have gone. Obviously, there's a history of this from Bush forward, from George Bush forward. Uh, you know, and Absolutely. even let's talk about Obama for a second. Even he campaigned on curtailing the Patriot Act and he didn't do that. He further ingrained a lot of the surveillance state mechanisms. So why are the establishment House Democrats the problem here? Why are they enabling the surveillance state? Right. You could see the centers of both parties, the establishment Republicans and establishment Democrats united against principled constitutionalists, both progressives among the Democrats, as well as people who I often don't see eye to eye on, but people who on surveillance and liberty issues do adopt a constitutional line. I'm thinking here particularly of the Freedom Caucus, the Tea Party influence caucus. Right, Rand Paul. Right. There comes a time in the history of nations when fear and complacency allow power to accumulate and liberty and privacy to suffer. That time is now, and I will not let the Patriot Act, the most unpatriotic of acts, go unchallenged. At the very least, we should debate we should debate whether or not we are going to relinquish our rights or whether or not we are going to have a full and able debate over whether or not we can live within the Constitution or whether or not we have to go around the Constitution. The bulk collection of all Americans' phone records all of the time is a direct violation of the Fourth Amendment. The Second Appeals Court has ruled it illegal. The president began this program by executive order. He should immediately end it through executive order. For over a year now, he has said the program is illegal, and yet he does nothing. He says, well, Congress can get rid of the Patriot Act. Congress can get rid of the bulk collection. And yet he has the power to do it at his fingertips. He began this illegal program. The court has informed him that the program is illegal, he has every power to stop it, and yet the president does nothing. Justice Brandeis wrote that the right to be left alone is the most cherished of rights, most prized among civilized men. The Fourth Amendment incorporates this right to privacy. The Fourth Amendment incorporates this right to be left alone. When we think about the bulk collection of records, you might ask, well, maybe I'm willing to give up my freedom for security. Maybe if I just give up a little freedom, I'll be more safe. Well, most of the information that comes on whether you're safe or not comes from people who have secret information that you're not allowed to look at. So you have to trust the people. You have to trust those in our intelligence community that they're being honest with you that when they tell you how important these programs are and that you must give up your freedoms, you must give up part of the Fourth Amendment, when they tell you this, you have to trust them. The problem is, is that we're having a great deal of difficulty trusting these people. And so you see voices on the wings of both parties uniting against voices in the center of both parties. And so these issues that present not left versus right, 
or capital versus labor dichotomies, right. but rather authoritarian power versus liberty interests. It's a different axis on, in politics that is often obscured by the one that maps more cleanly to a partisan dysfunction. But what we have here is a different dimension of American dysfunction. And yeah. it is the institutional consensus among, and this is what Eisenhower described as a military industrial congressional complex. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's not just the House Democrats, it's not just the House Republicans, it's ultimately the industrial interests that are embedded in the surveillance state. Remember who Edward Snowden worked for at the time that he came forward with his revelations, he had already right. worked for and stopped working for the CIA and the NSA. He worked for Booz Allen Hamilton, right. a, an accounting firm with yeah. its hands all up in the surveillance state. Right. I mean, there's so much money to be made here from hardware to software to accounting firms, to consulting firms, to construction, you name it, right? I mean, this is an incredibly lucrative industry and the industrial interest in surveillance is what renders it potentially fascist because it railroads rights because some people can profit from it. And that's exactly why I'm challenging Nancy Pelosi because she has over the course of her 30 year career consistently put corporate profit right. before constitutional rights. And this saga with the Patriot Act demonstrates it as cleanly as any other. You know, we could tell the same story through CIA torture or the right. war on drugs, but you know, with surveillance, there have been no fewer than half a dozen times that she has whipped votes to extend surveillance powers and, and including times under this criminal president. So at the very same time that she was proceeding with a theatrical late and limited impeachment process, she was handing Trump powers to monitor Americans without suspicion, without any basis. And that's an incredibly dangerous power for an aspiring tyrant to have, especially one who has no respect for the rule of law. Indeed. What what specifically are some of those actions so people are aware of them? Because this isn't getting media coverage. Yeah. You know, one of them in, with Pelosi, you mean to say? And yeah, the Pelosi specifically. Power, one of the ones that particularly enrages me as an immigrant is her deference to torture it by the CIA. So under the Bush administration in particular, we know that the Central Intelligence Agency detained and violated international human rights by torturing to the point of murder some number of detainees. The full record remains secret. There are reportedly thousands of photos, even videos of this torture that have never seen the light of day. There was a report that Senator Dianne Feinstein, who's no champion of independent oversight, let's just no, be she's clear, not. she's rubber, right? She's rubber stamped NSA surveillance. She's rubber stamped any number of international human rights abuses, but the torture program got even her go. And she went to the mat. She was on the Senate floor. This would be the spring, I think, of 2015. Senator Dianne Feinstein, of all people, decrying a constitutional crisis because the CIA hacked the Senate to steal documents that the Senate had investigated documenting the CIA's violations of international human rights that our country once proudly fought a world war to establish. And Nancy Pelosi was read into these programs in 2006 when she was the Speaker of the House under the Bush administration, and she refused to do anything about it. And when you have a position of such pivotal authority as a leader of Congress, and you help a continuing cover-up over human rights abuses instead of doing what international law required, what your partisan interest would have suggested, and what your constitutional oath require, all of those things together, she was willing to disregard in the service of what was politically expedient. And that's absolutely not what we swear an oath to do as members of Congress. And I'm eager to find a voice for my city and Congress who will abide the oath of office challenge the executive branch, 
defend our rights and vindicate international human rights when they're violated, particularly by people in our own country who we have authority to hold accountable. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, here's the thing. The NSA phone surveillance program that was exposed by Edward Snowden, right? This was mass surveillance that absolutely infringed our constitutional rights. And when it was exposed, there was there was definitely an uproar about it. But later on, there's very little conversation about what's continued to happen. And the New York Times of, of all publications actually did a, a report on this where it discovered there was only two unique leads, two, two unique leads that came out of all of that spying. So to me, this is a prime example of giving up your, your, your right to privacy, your First Amendment rights, all of these things to gain absolutely no security whatsoever, which is the argument that they've continually made, right? That it's necessary to secure uh, the state. Exactly right. The, the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which was created at the behest of the 9-11 Commission, it studied the phone metadata program and established that there, in fact, were no benefits at all from a security standpoint from that program, which is to say these aren't security programs at all. This no. is corporate pork, corporate pork trading your rights for corporate profits. And I want to be clear about the rights that we're trading. You named the one that to me is most crucial. It's not privacy. It's the First Amendment. The Fourth Amendment is the right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures. Right. It's violated routinely, particularly by this program. And I think people, to some extent, understand that. The First Amendment connection is crucial, and many people don't understand that. The First Amendment ensures a right to participate in the political process, a right to have independent beliefs, to write about your beliefs, to gather other people around your beliefs, to assemble in support of them, and to petition the government. And that right is compromised when yeah. people are watched. That's right. And it's not just the right to be to be to speak your mind. The First Amendment includes the right to speak your mind without being intimidated. That's right. And, and that's what surveillance does is render particularly vulnerable people or politically unpopular people vulnerable and, and intimidated and silenced. And so it is the silencing that surveillance can impose and the way that right. relates to democracy. It's not just privacy. It's democracy that surveillance offends. And that's why I am an anti-surveillance advocate. I am a pro-democracy defender. And, and Nancy Pelosi is not. She has been a surveillance advocate, a democracy destroyer. And we need democracy at a time like this, particularly with fascism and authoritarianism beating down the door. No, and that's exactly right. So, so and I 100% agree with you. So I want to add to that. It is, it is the idea of intimidating or curtailing protest against what the actions are of the state, right? That's the point of this. So when you have the platonomy that transcends both parties, we have members of the, Demo the Democrats, members of the Republicans, that both are taking money, they're taking corporate money, they're bought, they're bought Congress folks, and they're taking money to enrich the businesses that are working in this area. This is a bad space for the American public because there is no opposition party at this point. Nobody is opposing the increase in surveillance. And, and part of that is wanting to stamp out any sort of dissent, right? It, so, it is. So I, I want to locate it to a longer history. The surveillance is the latest emergence of a longstanding phenomenon. You know, before it was surveillance, it was police militarization. Yeah, correct. Before it was police militarization, it was wars for profit abroad, the same dynamics of corporate profit impelling, more than compelling, like dragging members of Congress who are beholden to their corporate dollars to support each of these things, mass incarceration, you know, right. resource plunder wars, CIA interventions. Uh, and, and so the surveillance regime is basically our military industrial complex turning its sights to the last market to monetize, and that is here at yeah. home. 
You know, other people have said before, our chickens are coming home to roost. That's what the surveillance data is. We've done this stuff to other countries for years. <laughs> it's and, true. And, and now we're doing it, you know, we're turning our fangs on the American people because that's what Congress does, that's you right. know, is is put money in corporations' pockets right. and, and, and not putting people first. And there's a whole generation now. This is one thing I'm really grateful to Bernie Sanders for. I think he has uncorked a bottle of voices and not just politicians, but you know, movement activists, young people, nurses, teachers have been leading the way in the last year. You know, the the voices for justice and equity and sustainability will not be contained. And even if Congress turns a deaf ear to our concern, we will not only agitate, but we will remove right. those members of Congress and replace them with allies to our movements who will not turn a deaf ear to the needs of our communities and people, especially in this age of corporate plunder and 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 fascism emerging in Washington. I'm, I'm very gravely concerned yeah. about this intersection of corporate power and government power. It is a, that's an especially dangerous place for our rights because to your point, without the American people having a representative, if it's corporations and the government united against us, right. we've seen that combination before in history and it's not pleasant. No. And I don't want that to rise here. And it's already happening. It's you already know? happening. I think it, I, it has happened. I'm going to say it's already Absolutely. here. We're, we're looking Absolutely. at it now. And you're right about the globalization aspect of this. We've seen our multinational corporations run amok abroad for years and decades, extracting wealth, chasing the lowest dollar in labor, uh, having the CIA, CIA intervene in governments that weren't friendly to our oil interests or friendly to our business interests. So, so right. yeah, the roosters are coming home to roost because... Where else is capitalism going to go at this point? It's it's run it's it's run the runway as far as globalization is concerned. Right. So it's looking for the next thing, and I think this is part of of how we're seeing the um, end of empire here with the American empire. I want Can to I talk connect this to the pandemic really quick? Just cause, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, talking about globalization, the fact that corporate interests have driven globalization is part of the erosion of domestic manufacturing in the United yeah. States. The fact that we don't have, for instance, enough personal protective equipment right. or ventilators is connected very much to that phenomenon you were talking about. And that's also something like the emergence of the surveillance state mm -hmm. in which House Democrats have been thoroughly complicit because it was under the Bill Clinton administration that Democrats historically moved to the right to try to compete with the Republican Party for corporate dollars. When they right. did that, they might have tactically uh, strengthened the party by getting access to that corporate dollars, but the bottom fell out. And ever since then, the American people have not had representatives in Washington. Right. And that's what we have to fix, particularly because when we talk here about corporate globalization, it's not just our rights that become threatened in this it's rise of fascism from the Philippines to India yeah. to Washington. It's also, you know, our our health at the moment is threatened because we don't actually have resiliency uh, yeah. to, for domestic needs to be met by. And just think here also about how that would meet the needs of organized labor. You know, we've mm -hmm. the corporate Democratic Party turned a deaf ear to organized labor in the 90s when people were clamoring, you know, we're losing all our jobs. And now we're reaping what we sowed then. All of these problems were preventable. And, you know, I'm tired of seeing Democrats and particularly ducking into the punch of problems that we could prevent if we just made more sane intelligence decisions that put people in front and not corporations. No. And, you know, it's in an, um, to just get slightly off topic for a second, we're seeing it right now as far as what you mentioned, the Democrats have moved to the right. They, they've so occupied the center right in, in the political spectrum at this point that we're now seeing as a response, the Trump administration sort of outflanking them on the left in some of the responses yes. to the COVID situation. And yes. for example, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi 
were suggesting when they were looking at aid packages, Chuck was suggesting that they offer low interest loans to Americans. So let me get this straight, Chuck. We're going to give billions of dollars to the banks and the multinational corporations for free. But you're going to charge a, a an interest rate, a low interest rate on a loan to Americans that have lost their job. How the hell are they supposed to pay, make the loan payments? You know, like they're looking for ways to like profit off of people's misery. And, well, the you most know, powerful people at that. You know who that reminds me of is Joe Biden. That's what yeah, he did in 2008 God, yes. when, he, when he forced students to pay for the bank bailout. It, that's exactly right. So they keep doing this stuff. And I'm and as I've been watching this get worse and worse, right? We're now at the point where the fascists on the right are saying, well, we're going to occupy this space over here because we know how we keep these votes is by really addressing the income inequality in some way. Now, the $1,200 they end up giving to Americans was nothing. It's ridiculous. You can't even make mortgage payment or rent payment with that. It's nothing compared to what the platonomy got. But it's still something more than what Chuck Schumer was suggesting, right? Which is like, we're going to profit off of your misery. I, I, they, I don't understand how they don't see the problem here. They're simply enabling the fascists to become more fascist, increase their power, and they're not providing a left exit to the income inequality that is so sorely needed in this country. You're absolutely right. And, I, and I'd point out a couple of things here. I think you absolutely correctly diagnosed the problem. And, and just another way to describe it, the way I put it sometimes is that the, the Democrats have become so hoodwinked by Republicans, and they've done so much to walk and talk like Republicans, that Republicans have figured out how unpopular it is. Now they're trying to act like Democrats. And and Democrats are not going to show up for working people. It's It's even if the the Republicans aren't showing, I want to make clear that the GOP is not an ally to working people, but they will act. No, they're not, but they're they're pretending like they are, and it's going to be effective in this general election. The one hope we had to get Trump out of office was Bernie Sanders. Joe Biden ain't it. Well, and, uh, you know, I'll just say with respect to Biden, I can't endorse him given his record. If he were to embrace positions endorsed and supported by the majority of American people like universal health care and the Green New Deal, I might be in a position to reconsider. But at at the moment, you know, I envision myself going to Washington after replacing Pelosi to fight whoever is in the White House, whether it's Trump or whether it's Biden. That's right. It's going to be someone with a history of racial predation, a history of misogyny a history of Sexual putting assault. right-wing justices on the Supreme Court. You know, I I see both Biden and Trump on the basis of their records yeah. as enemies of the future. And I'm hoping that Biden can turn another leaf. I hope that the pressure on him from our own uh, side of the party and from his own supporters is enough to get him to turn a new leaf. I don't have a lot of confidence that a tiger if it changes its stripes, so I'm not holding my breath. Uh, but, but to the point, your point about the likelihood of this play working in 20, November 2020. We saw it work in November 2016. Right. That's how Trump won the White House is by outflanking the Democrats, particularly the corporate Democrats, including Hillary Clinton, saying at the time, I'm going to be your friend labor because I oppose these very same corporate trade agreements that hollowed out the Midwest right. and the manufacturing sector. And I won't 90. fight for 15. I'll fight for 13. I mean, we could go through the list. It's just so ridiculous to me that they're so yes. tone deaf. And apparently they still have not learned this lesson because here we are. I think Joe Biden, in many respects, is absolutely worse than Hillary Clinton was. And I think this might be a bigger bloodbath. We've already seen it with that. some of the ads coming out. It's, um, yeah. it's remarkable. Well, ad, to talk about those ads, you know, you see Trump's ad about Biden, particularly demonstrating what many of us who supported Bernie have been saying for That's months, right. which is this man is simply unfit for office. Set aside yeah. his history. Set aside all the conservative aspects of it. Set aside, you know, chaining students to their student debt. 
right. uh, while giving banks billions of dollars, yeah. set aside, you know, putting millions of Americans in prison, set aside cheerleading for every corporate war that Biden has been an architect of. Even if you set aside that right wing record as a Democrat, you would still have this problem that the man is simply at a phase in his life where he doesn't have all of his faculties anymore. Right. And I mean that I as an insult. True. It, it pains me to see what's what he's being dragged through, frankly. I don't think anybody should be forced to be on camera going through what he is clearly enduring yeah, at the moment. It's and, cringy. And the Trump administration is weaponizing it. Similarly, Trump, Trump had another ad this week about Nancy Pelosi. Yeah. Who I'm and her ice and cream. We turn now to that $350 billion fund to help small businesses and its workers get through the shutdown. It will be up to Congress to restock it. But Democrats blocking that move this morning. They asked for a quarter of a trillion dollars in 48 hours. I said, well, I don't, I don't think so. They objected, and I congratulate the Senate Democrats. Speaker Pelosi, what are you going to share with us from your home? Chocolate candy. Thousands have been forced to wait for hours at food banks all across the country. This is... Oh my. Chocolate, and then we have some other chocolate here. We just got it restocked, the ice cream. You don't want to eat up everything all at one time. I can't do it much longer. I'm trying so hard. We were, can we say, enjoying. Having to admit that, yeah, we're, we're starving, and I like it better than anything else. Taping this segment, there are 22 million people out. Of this work. specific program <laughs> is about stopping job losses today. This is hurting people bad. Other people in our family go for some other flavors, but... Right now, it's survival move. You don't know where that next something else is going to come from. I don't know what I would have done if ice cream were not invented. I just wonder. <laughs> <laughs> it was so painful. I just want to be honest with you. It was painful to watch. Uh, I, I wish the Democrats knew how to make such an effective ad. I mean, it was painful. You know, well, here's... Can I talk just for a second, though, yeah. about the particular arc for me watching it? Uh, the first minute of it, I was elated. I was like, who made this ad for I know, us? and then you saw... <laughs> because this ad was all about how the person I'm challenging in an election is, is wrong, an out-of-touch right. millionaire yeah. snapping, you know, on hundreds of dollars worth of ice cream in her gourmet fancy freezers worth more than anything 20K I owe. or whatever, yeah. Right, I mean, each of her freezers is worth more than my bank account, you know? Right. And like, and, and to then see... The Trump administration weaponized this when he, of course, is an even more out of touch, even more wealthy, even you know, worse example of plutocracy and kleptocracy. They've both been born with silver spoons in their yeah, mouth. Exactly. And yet he's able to paint her with this brush. And I get to the end of the ad and I see who was paid for it. And my heart just sank. I and I was like, this is what this is what the corporate Democrats are allowing to happen I agree. by refusing to show up for the needs of the American people. I and agree. It's on them. To... It's completely on them. We warned them yeah. that this was going to happen. Look, Bernie yeah. Sanders was kid gloves. He didn't do this stuff. This is the stuff that Bernie should have been doing, in my opinion, during the primary. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to critique Bernie. I feel like Bernie's done more to advance our vision than, than anyone in my lifetime. Oh, so. I agree. I just wish he went after Biden a little bit harder because we have an unprepared candidate that never had to face any real opposition during the primary. He, Bernie was friendly towards him. You know what I'm saying? And now- I do. Now he's dealing an adversary that is the worst of the worst. It's going to be ugly. Yeah. Well, this is exactly why Democrats should have uh, supported the nominee with the greatest support instead of trying to consolidate as an end run yep. someone who's going to protect their institutional interests and defend a status quo that we've already seen cannot hold. You know, Democrats are operating under this fantasy that we can return to some yesteryear. Even before the pandemic, that was not possible. 
Yeah. Uh, you can't fleece the American people for this long and tell us to just go along with it. We're not going to take it anymore. And, and so now the question is, which way does the cookie crumble? Does it crumble into an authoritarian abyss or does it crumble into a sustainable, humane future where we have a federal jobs guarantee, where everybody has health care, where everybody has an education, where everybody has opportunity? We can have that future if we claim it. And the principal obstacles to it are not just Republicans. They include, very unfortunately, the corporate Democrats, including the one who I'm going to replace in November. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I want to talk a little bit uh, about the FISA courts um, and subpoena compliance and some of the other things that have gone on. Now, we don't know what this court's doing. It's very secretive. Who knows what's going on in there? Who knows who they're going after, et cetera? We don't. We simply don't know. It's a very dark, secretive world. But I think we do have an indication of what companies have complied with their subpoenas or how they've been able to obtain information from from others that simply have uh, they're not secure enough to protect the American public. Can you walk us through a little bit of of who those companies are and maybe some advice about uh, ones that we should be avoiding if we want to protect our privacy? Well, so generally the entire telecom sector and the entire Internet sector has been co-opted by the government in this context, either through legal subpoenas and information requests. National security letters are another quasi-legal, very secretive instrument weaponized by the FBI in particular to compel corporate data disclosure, often usually compromising the rights and the data of sometimes thousands of customers at once in the context of a single order. Uh, And so it's really the, it's hard to find a company that has not been uh, conscripted. Now that's just the legal front door. Among the things that Edward Snowden revealed to us, by pulling back the wall of ex- uh, the curtain of executive secrecy was separate government programs, particularly NSA hacking programs that take from companies, whatever the legal departments try to deny the government. So whether it's through the company's voluntary compliance or through, and just an example of this backdoor hacking by the government, Cisco is a routing company. Yeah. Cisco. Uh, that, you know, at different points had, um, sought to maintain the security and integrity of their devices. And so the government, started intercepting Cisco shipments to insert chips into the devices and then send them on to their intended destinations. You know, that kind of uh, espionage against the American people is conscripted any number of companies' supply chains. And in the internet world, you know, the big tech companies come to mind, and I think particularly of Facebook, uh, you know, the, the companies that, and Google to a lesser extent, but also very much so, you know, the companies whose data models and profit models, business models are in here in data collection. Those yeah. are basically corporate surveillance entities. You could distinguish that to some extent against companies, say, like Apple that principally sell hardware. And because Apple has a different business model, they've been able to make very different business choices around this. And so, you know, Apple hinges its corporate reputation uh, perhaps because the CEO you know, grew up gay in the South, he understands the value of privacy. The, the company has hinged its reputation on defending user privacy, even in the face of government attempts to gain access to their devices. So you mm-hmm. do see very different examples of corporate responses to this problem. At the end of the day, I'd say one of the structural problems is just the uh, growing dominance of corporations in digital life. There was an era in the internet when you could just experience the internet unfettered without the intervention and mediation of corporate platforms. And when we talk about corporate content moderation, for instance, uh, just I think it was two weeks ago, an interview that I did with an independent journalist in New York by the name of Walker Bragman talking about many of these very same issues, YouTube took that interview down. And because he had you know, recorded- me. Yeah, we were, we were effectively censored by YouTube. Yeah, and, I'm and not what, surprised. 
you know, and I want to make clear, I don't think anybody was behind the curtain saying, okay, you know, silence that guy. It's even worse than that. It's a computer saying, oh, they said the word that starts with C and ends in virus. And so we have to take this video down. And, and what we were talking about was the way in which the pandemic can facilitate authoritarian power grabs. And so it's like, it's one dimension to say it's corporate <laughs> That's content. That's so meta. It is so meta, right? Like, exactly. Like, thank you for appreciating that. Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, it doesn't get any better than that. I mean, I'll give you another story that for me is kind of meta and it's much darker even than that. I've spent, you know, even longer than I've spent fighting the NSA, I've spent fighting the FBI. Uh, 12 years ago, I launched a program to combat racial and religious profiling for a then startup nonprofit called Muslim Advocates. Mm -hmm. And my principal antagonist at the time, his name was Bob Mueller. He was the head of the FBI and they were infiltrating Quaker meetings. Yeah. They were infiltrating mosques. They were infiltrating animal rights activists across the United States and vilifying them as terrorists while right-wing extremists were continuing to do all the things that they've done in the years since. Right. And, you know, when I think about uh, with, with the FBI, you know, these problems go back a hundred years. Yeah. The, the Bureau was born from an act of suppressing workers and labor rights. That That's was the right. plumbery. And, you know, people forget that this, and then, you know, in years after that, it was trying to drive Dr. King to an early death. Like our security agencies are profoundly anti-worker and anti-American. These right. are not democratic. They are not transparency. And they are certainly not security agencies. And we yeah. think of these questions through the lens of security entirely too much. Just to put like now that make, very, make that very concrete, an off-duty FBI agent shot one of my unhoused neighbors about 200 feet from my front door about two months ago. And thankfully what? he survived. Thankfully, he survived. There have been three community meetings responding to it. I just want to lay out this arc. It's, it's very revealing to me. The very first meeting was called by the Homeless Youth Alliance. It included effectively the community of unhoused folks who knew this young man. And we were grieving. You know, we were in a room and people were talking about their feelings. The second meeting was convened by my elected representative on our board of supervisors, Dean Preston, yeah. uh, Dean and members of the district attorney, Chase Boudin's office, okay. the SFPD. They were all there. And they said, this is really bad. We have a bunch of questions. We have no answers. We can't tell you anything because we're only local officials and these are the feds. We really hope somebody with some influence can do something about this. Nancy Pelosi, to my knowledge, has not said a word in public or written a word in private. The third community me meeting our campaign convened with a local organization, Cop Watch. It was the first meeting, to my knowledge, the only one at this point where the survivor's family was heard directly. She FaceTimed in the survivor from his hospital bed. And we heard from him directly about how this cop at the corner of Haight and Ashbury, of all places, oh, rolled up trying to bust somebody rolling a joint. And just to be clear, this has been happening at that corner for about, I don't know, what, 100 years? Yeah. Uh, that and we and legalized it, pot. Why? He shot him? It, it refused to identify himself, got in a fist fight, shoots a kid, and then says, I'm an FBI agent and pulls his badge out. That's and it's outrageous. Entirely outrageous. But you can't get anyone in this city to do anything about it because no one in this city has the power to do anything about it. There's three people who have the power to do anything about it. One of them is Senator Kamala Harris, who is a law enforcement veteran. I don't expect her to do anything about it. Yeah, Another she's... is Senator Dianne Feinstein, who is, used to be the mayor here, but you know, hasn't shown up for the city's interests as far as I can tell in a generation. With the, maybe she the didn't show up as mayor either. I mean, we can have that conversation another day. <laughs> Indeed, I'd love to have that. And then the other person is the person I'm challenging to replace in November, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi can't bring herself to say a word about it. I'm not even in office. And, you know, I'm trying to do what I can to hold the community's interests and at least get the survivor heard. And directly. Chase can't do anything because it's, it's a federal issue. Right. 
It's that we need federal voices who understand these values. Local races matter a lot. They're not enough. We need to also take Congress, and we can. And there's no race in the country, frankly, that presents a sharper contrast than our corporate democratically elected Speaker of the House who has voted for Trump's trade policy and supported his foreign policy and imposed fiscal pago austerity rules and funded his concentration camps and slow walked and failed on a limited impeachment process that we could have won uh, in so many ways that Nancy Pelosi has supported the right wing. And I've done nothing yeah. but fight she it. She is the, the right wing as far as I'm concerned. She's definitely, I mean, when she calls herself Certainly progressive, it just, my hair catches on fire because she's absolutely <laughs> never been a progressive. It's like, it's no, been a long no. Time. It's been a long time since she did anything progressive. I mean, I think there was an yeah. era in her career where she very early on, thankfully, stood for our city's principles. But So you know, I want to um, ask you one thing about... Um, about why it is that those there are those members of the right wing. We talked about this briefly earlier, but I want to talk about in regards to, to Fourth Amendment issues. Like sure. you have uh, Rand Paul, who has obviously been very vocal on this, but a handful of other Republicans that are now basically saying the, that that the Patriot Act has gone too far. The spying on Americans is unconstitutional. We should do something right. about First Amendment rights. Where do you see this all coming around um, as far as where the spectrum of right to left ends up being in a couple of years? Because it hmm. seems there's just this flux going on. Fascinating question. You know, I see that basically separate battles within each of the parties over where their soul is. Is, is it a corporate party? Is it a grassroots party? And, and the Republicans, to some extent, are, uh, you know, the, the attack on the center in their party started earlier. It started during the Obama administration when the left wing of the Democratic right. Party was to some extent falling asleep, right? I mean, that, that was the same years that the anti-war movement sort of had the legs cut out from under it. Uh, and so I, I see the populist um, uh, attack on the center advancing in both dimensions. I think yeah. in the Republican Party, it's advanced further than it has for us on the left. Our campaign to remove Speaker Pelosi and enable an expansion of the squad and a and bold in defense of the future, that presents the same opportunity on the left. You know, the same energy, for instance, that went into forming the Indivisible Network to try to replicate the success of the Tea Party. You know, the Tea Party did a lot more than just lobby members of Congress. That's what Indivisible has done. The other thing that the Tea Party did was go out and remove some incumbents and put in movement actors. And I don't agree with the goals of their movement, uh, right. but I do agree with the notion that political actors should be accountable to people and yeah. and not to their employers. Uh, and, and, and that's that's the voice that I represent. You know, I'm, I'm a renter myself. I'm an immigrant. My family lost our home when I was six foreclosure. I got my undergrad degree over the course of a decade going to night school uh, before I had a chance to train and teach at Stanford Law. And I've, you know, all the work I've done over the last 20 years, fighting the right wing, advancing right. civil rights and advancing human rights, even in a time of corporate rule, that's work that I want to put to use on behalf of my neighbors and we, the people of the United States. And how do you think that pertains to to this to SCOTUS? Because whoever ends up as president, I think, going to be picking a SCOTUS uh, judge. And and my yeah. my concern is, is people want to say make this a case that it's a vote for Biden, and I actually don't see it. The way he behaved with the Thomas Clarence situation, he stopped. Uh, he was very awful towards Anita Hill. He stopped some of these women from testifying altogether when he should have allowed them to testify. And then that's part one. And then part two is Scalia. They all they all voted yes on Scalia. So so to me, this tells me it's a problem. The, the Democrats aren't necessarily protecting, in, at least in the modern period of time, any sort of, of progressive 
judges. They're just not. I mean, I mean, these judges aren't supposed to be biased to begin with. That's that's a given. But they are. Let's be honest. It's a it's a human endeavor. So that's part of the part of the situation. And it's always politicized because it's the Supreme Court. Um, what are your feelings on this? Yeah, thank you so much for raising that. So first, just with respect to the next president, whoever the next president is, presuming Biden is the nominee, they will have a history and a record of appointing and supporting right wing justices on the Supreme Court. Biden put Clarence Thomas on the bench. It's if anybody says that the Supreme Court is a reason to vote for Biden, you know, they're kind of burying their heads in the sand and ignoring documented history. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, I worked for three years at the American Constitution Society, which was founded in the wake of the Bush versus Gore decision, specifically to restore balance to American jurisprudence. And we developed, I spent three years building a pipeline of progressive jurists for the next Democratic president to appoint. The Obama administration turned his back on that endeavor. And unfortunately, the Obama administration just appointed diverse prosecutors and called that, you know, said that was that was the goal. We're just going to continue stacking the bench with prosecutors. We'll just make sure that they are black and brown, too. Yeah. And that's not the answer. You know, it's like putting a woman at the head of the CIA and saying, right. Like, and saying it's fine. Yeah, no, yeah. it's not enough to, to identify with race and gender if if the belief system isn't behind that. And and exactly. the idea that everybody in these groups is monolithic and their beliefs is ridiculous. So I hear yeah, you there. Racism is institutional yeah, and totally doesn't answer it ultimately. But yeah. just to finish this point on the court, I, I fought the Kavanaugh nomination in 2006 to the D.C. Circuit at the same time that we were developing this pipeline of progressive jurists. We were trying to stop right wing appointments. 2006. 2006, 10 years before most people even knew the man's name. Like yeah. I, was, I was working actively to try to keep him off the bench because he was a Bush torture lawyer. Yeah. Wasn't just a rapist. I mean, he's a rapist and yeah. a torture lawyer. Brett Kavanaugh can't travel internationally because other com- other countries are would be entirely authorized legally to detain him as an international yeah. war criminal. I agree. And yet he sits on the U.S. Supreme Court. And this is to draw this full circle. We once sent to justice of the Supreme Court, Robert Jackson, to Germany to prosecute the Nuremberg trials that established the principle that people like Brett Kavanaugh are guilty like have torture. participated guilty in, yeah. Yes. It's insanity. Uh, Absolutely so, twisted to me. I have a solution here, though. I want to make do. sure this That's what I was going to ask you. So you read my mind. <laughs> Ten years ago, I wrote a paper. Under the Obama administration, when he, this was for the seat that went to Sotomayor, I had recommended someone else who since you know, she's testified before Congress a lot. Her name's Pamela Carlin. And in that same article where I proposed that Carlin, or I thought at the time Hillary Clinton would be a not bad nominee to the court, uh, the structural remedy that Congress should support, and which I aim to introduce after I'm elected, is to stagger 18-year terms for Supreme Court justices. We cannot continue... Okay judicial life tenure in an era of politicized appointments. Judicial life tenure was supposed to prevent judicial politicization. The judiciary has already been politicized. The only rational response is to decouple life tenure from that principle. To protect judicial independence, we have to end judicial life tenure. How hard would it be to institute that? It doesn't require an amendment. It could be a simple act of legislation. And I don't know how easy the consensus would be. Absolutely. And it's something that I think might take a couple of cycles in Congress, but I'm looking forward to doing that work and building the consensus. I think we can find support across the aisle for it because it's a process neutral solution that simply ensures fluidity. It prevents the court from being a weapon of the past to chain the future. Indeed. Uh, And can we impeach some of these judges or is that a near possibility? It's never been done before. It's conceivably possible. Ultimately, the, the court is its own arbiter. So the yeah, only which is way, a problem, right? I mean, that's exactly the problem. It's one reason why we have to cycle justices off because okay. it's been proven. You know, when Scalia sat in judgment of the Dick Cheney uh, White House records case, you know, this was a case that tried to 
opened the White House record so we could see who was meeting with the Bush administration prior to the Iraq invasion. Nonprofits were trying to say, were oil companies egging you on to war? And the Supreme Court said, the American people don't get to see. And the critical vote there was Justice Scalia, who went on a hunting trip, flew on a private plane with Dick Cheney, and then wrote a completely vapid defense of how that somehow did not reflect bias. You know, when we have the court insulating executive secrecy and keeping the American people in the dark, that is not democracy. And we no. can't just defer to lifetime appointed judges who are basically reinforcing from the bench a counter-revolutionary, anti-American, right. unconstitutional uh, approach to politics that is reinforcing this very same fascism that we see today. Yeah, we we can't defer to, to justices who are going to run our democracy into a ditch. It's outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. Um, so I know you need to get on to your next interview. Where can people donate to your campaign um, if they want to donate to it? Where's the best place to do that at? Thank you, Tina. Yeah, folks can visit us online at shahidforchange.us. Folks can donate. Folks anywhere can volunteer. We have a phone banking operation that oh, great. Uh, includes hundreds and uh, will include thousands of people phoning in uh, to, to persuade San Francisco voters. I would like to make this point. With Bernie's campaign, many of us were making calls to different states, yeah. and we often only had weeks to do it. We have six months left, and we only have to reach a single right. city. So this victory is absolutely within reach of, of our movement. And I'm looking forward to, to liberating the 12th Congressional uh, District seat this fall. Liberating is a good good choice of words there. And I think this does have national implications. So people should pay attention to this race, even though it's a congressional district, it's in California. The fact that it, that she is such a powerful position within the Democratic Party and within Congress makes it a national focus. That's exactly right. And, and I'm very grateful to have support from every one of the 50 states and even U.S. expats living abroad. Uh, my laugh line there is the sun never sets on our support base. And unlike the British Empire that, uh, you know, effectively uh, colonized and, and more or less you know, co-opted the people from which I came for 400 years, I didn't have to, you know, wage a neo-colonial war or, you know, right. commit any human rights abuses to do it. And I, I'm very grateful for all that support. And, uh, and it's very humbling to me as an immigrant to have that support and challenging the most corporate politician on the planet, most powerful corporate politician on the planet. Well, thanks for coming on, Shade. I look forward to speaking with you again. Great to see you, Tina. Thank you so much, sister.